In this episode of Physically Spiritual, I'll be discussing human free will and fear. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. In the 1980s, there was a famous experiment into human free will done by a Benjamin Libet. People in the experiment were asked to flick their wrist, and then when they did that movement, they were measuring the electrical signals in their brains. It was already known at this time that our brains had what was called readiness potential, meaning before we would make a move, there was something in our brain that happened that anticipated that physical movement or happened before it. What the Libet experiment did differently was that it, the participants were asked to, uh, to keep track of the first moment they had a conscious thought of whether or not to move their wrist. So they were watching a clock and the moment they thought about moving their wrist, they were to note the time and then move their wrist. And then they were to report to the researchers what exact moment that thought came to mind. And part of the experiment, then they compared their conscious thought to when the readiness potential was registered by the equipment. And what they found was that there was a signal in the brain that preceded their first conscious thought to make a move. Based on these findings, uh, the, they, they interpreted the findings to say that human free will, as we typically conceive of it, doesn't exist. So people started to, to theorize that we didn't have free will, but they said that we actually had free won't, meaning that, the, that the, the what we were going to choose would rise up from, from our biology. And then what free will really meant was we had the power to reject that option, not the actual power to choose what we wanted to do. Um, so today on Physically Spiritual, as we're thinking about this experiment I want to go deep into the idea of free will, but in light of the human experience of fear. This whole third season of Physically Spiritual, we're asking the question, um, how do we overcome a habitual sin or a vice? And we're doing that by exploring different perspectives on mental health, on how our, our brain works, how our mind works, and how we can overcome that. So from the, a Catholic perspective, what we mean by freedom isn't exactly what was being tested in this experiment. Uh, many Catholic theologians have actually uh, given commentary and, and interpretations of these findings, and, and I'll link a few uh, talks in the show notes of different uh, professors who have uh, commented on this experiment. But just a few comments come to mind. One is, in order for... Uh, for it to really be free, a free choice, what we mean by that is it has to be something you're actually choosing between. It has to be a substantive choice, a meaningful choice, right? Just the, the movement of your wrist is sort of an, an inconsequential choice, right? So we might say that the choice, the free will act of whether or not to move the wrist actually happened when the participants chose to be in the experiment. 
right? When they agreed to the constraints, to the to the regulations of how they were supposed to go about it, it's at that moment they chose to move their wrist. And then later on, they were just carrying out that previous choice that they had made. On the other hand, what we mean by freedom uh, in a Catholic perspective isn't exactly this. We don't mean choosing without constraint, as if there's no determination in the will, that we're just simply doing things at random. But in fact, from a Catholic perspective, our, our choices are on some level determined. We're affected by the world around us. We're moved by our passions and by what we've experienced in the past. Here's what the Catechism says about human freedom in paragraph 1730. It says, God created man a rational being, conferring on him the dignity of a person who can initiate and control his own actions. God willed that man should be left in the hand of his own counsel so that he might of his own accord seek his creator and freely attain his full and blessed perfection by cleaving to him. It's important this paragraph begins by noting that God created us as a rational being, as a rational being. And it's in fact the fact that we're rational that then leads to us having the capacity of freedom. The traditional conception of the will, especially by thinkers like St. Thomas Aquinas, is that the will was the rational appetite, the rational appetite. So everything I experience in the world, everything I know, everything I experience through my senses or everything I know through my intellect, I'm experiencing a passion toward it, an appetite toward it. So as a human person, I am a certain sort of thing. And my desires come from my nature. So I, I desire the things that I need, that I lack, that I'm created and designed for. Right? So when my body needs food, I desire food. I have hunger for food. When my body needs sleep, I desire sleep. So on and so forth. So our desires correspond to our, our nature, our needs. And on the deepest level, since I'm made in God's image and likeness, I'm made for God and by God. Right? So that deepest part of my heart, that deepest part of myself, ultimately longs for God. So uh, this is why we're free. It's not that we choose like a computer, just um, sort of unaffected and coldly choosing what, what makes the most sense in an equation. Think of uh, Mr. Spock from the old Star Trek shows, the idea of the Vulcans. We're sort of these uh, purely rational, detached, emotionless people who were able to choose just what was best as if a computer was making the choice, like it's an algorithm or something like that. That's not the way the human mind works. That's not where the human person is designed. So some things that I'm choosing, I'm working on my sense appetites. So I'm seeing things, I'm hearing things, I'm smelling things, or my internal senses. So I'm remembering things or I'm imagining things. And then I'm experiencing passions toward those. I'm either being attracted by what I'm sensing or I'm being repulsed by what I'm sensing. And this is the way all animals function, right? You put the food down in front of your dog. It eats the food if it's hungry. Uh, we have a cat at home. When he's hungry, he meows. We put food in his dish. He eats till he's full and then he stops eating. And then when he's hungry again, he goes back to the food, right? They're reacting based on their sense appetites. And we're also in the same way with our memory and imagination reacting to those two. 
But our free will is from our rational appetite. So what we're saying is, as as humans, we're not just experiencing things on the sense level, but based on our sense experiences, we're able to come to a, a knowledge of universal ideas, of more than just the practical reality of what's in front of us, but to the truth of what's in front of us. Right. So I don't just experience dogs and cats. I understand dogness and catness. Right. These aren't just particular dogs and cats, but the concept of them. And so I have the capacity to identify all different sorts of dogs, even though they look drastically different from one another. Everything from a Chihuahua to a Great Dane. Right. I, I might be able to do that because I'm trained as sort of a, a biologist who who can identify the characteristics of these animals. But I also have a capacity to do that as a rational being. We also come to know higher concepts, things like goodness, justice, truth, beauty. Uh, And these these higher principles uh, call us on to something beyond what the physical world presents to us. Right. So if I'm in a certain situation and I'm affected by what I'm experiencing in the world around me and I'm experiencing the passions that go along with that, Let's say, for example, maybe I am um, being persecuted for my faith and I have to appear in front of a judge or a tribunal and they, they say something like this. If you recant the gospel, uh, we won't kill you. If you don't repent the gospel, we will kill you. Right? I'm biologically wired for survival. So in that moment, what's being presented to my senses into my imagination as I imagine my head getting chopped off or whatever it is, right? Everything that's coming into my senses is saying, recant, right? Survive. Do what you need to do to get through this. You know, my imagination, probably the enemy is going to be there in my mind, like, oh, you can repent later. It'll be fine. Um, You know, so I'm going to be experiencing all of these passions. But then since I'm rational, in addition to those sense impressions creating passions, I also know the truth. So I might then consider a concept like justice and think of the fact that that I was a slave to sin uh, and that Christ set me free and that he died for me to do that. Um, so it would only be just that I would die for him too. So in the midst of that moment of extreme fear and pressure, because I'm rational, I can choose something different. I can be moved by what I know and not just what I feel, not just what I sense, not just what I imagine. Right? And this is what we mean when we say that humans have free will. It's not that none of our choices are determined and that we're not attracted to anything. We're not uh, isolated from all outside influence, and, and sometimes we're determined by what's outside of us. But we also know the truth, and we can choose contrary to our instincts. We can choose what's different from our sensations. Later on in paragraph 1735 of the Catechism, it says, Imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, 
inordinate, inordinate attachments or other f- psychological or social factors. All right, first thing, it, the, the paragraph starts out with that word imputability. Imputability and responsibility, they're basically synonyms. So if it's something is imputable to me, it means I'm guilty for it. So if I'm not imputable, it means that that something about what I've done has made me not responsible for it, has made me not guilty for that action. So what the catechism is saying is, although I'm free, there are certain factors, factors that limit my freedom. There are certain factors that, that diminish my capacity to choose contrary to those instincts. And it lists ignorance, inadvertence, meaning something's accidental, duress or fear, that situation that I just illustrated, habit, bad or good, inordinate attachments, meaning my, my unhealthy connections to the things of the world, or other psychological or social factors, all the various pressures that we experience. Uh, so the catechism is recognizing here the fact that this uh, capacity for freedom isn't absolute. And with that, I want to pause and invite everyone to consider supporting Physically Spiritual. Here at Awaken Catholic, each one of our shows has a patron community. At Physically Spiritual, I have the Totus Tuus community. Totus Tuus is all for you. That was the great motto of uh, my motto, who's sitting behind my right shoulder, uh, St. John Paul II. All to you referring to giving his life to Jesus through Mary. So as a member of the Totus Tuus community, you'll get access to the full episodes of the Ask Me Anything uh, episodes that I do monthly. You'll, there, there's bonus content I record every week. And then you'll also get access to many other perks. So head over to physicallyspiritual.com to sign up. If you want to get access to your bonus content, or you just want a great experience with all the content here on Awaken Catholic, or to get a great Catholic alternative to social media, go and get the Awaken app. You can go to theawakenapp.io or search the Awaken app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Now back to the original programming. (laughs) So we left off with this idea of imputability, that even though we're free, our freedom isn't absolute. And I want to take this one step deeper and consider the idea of fear, this idea of fear or duress that the catechism mentions, and talk a little bit about what happens in us biologically when we experience fear. In season one of Physically Spiritual, I had an episode called The Tiger in the Inbox, and, and we talked in that episode about polyvagal theory and the whole system of uh, fight, flight, freeze, and safety that our nervous system goes through. So I want to revisit some of those concepts in brief, but I'll also link in the show notes that previous episode so you can go back and get a more in-depth treatment of this information if you'd like it. But we have to realize that our brain is a survival organ. Our brain is a survival organ. Our, our body biologically is ordered toward the good of life. Right? This is why, it, from a theological perspective, the foundational right of every person is a right to life all the way through. But biologically, we're ordered toward life, toward survival. So the instincts of my body are toward survival, both my immediate survival, then also the continuation of our species, meaning toward procreation. So my, my biological drives, my instincts are all wired in this direction. And the brain isn't an exception to that, right? It's not like nature just decided to drop a supercomputer in my head for the purpose of creating poetry and, and, and thinking about 
advanced scientific concepts. It can do that, and that's wonderful. But primarily and first and foremost, our brain is a survival organ. There are certain layers to our brain, and scientists have noted that the functionality of those layers correspond to different, more primitive creatures. So at the base of our brain, around our brain stem, is kind of, you might think of the oldest portion, sometimes called the reptilian brain. Next, the part of the brain that we share with, with uh, with other mammals, other higher creatures. And then as humans, we have the the most advanced and developed frontal cortex, the whole front section of our brains. Although um, other mammals have a frontal cortex, ours is much larger and much more developed than than any other animal. So we have these layers of the brain, but because of our survival instincts, what happens is um, the earlier portions, that more fundamental functioning, is favored in times of duress, in times of fear. So that that frontal cortex, that most modern part of the brain, is associated with our capacity for higher learning, right? That capacity for truth, that capacity to to come to know concepts beyond the physical world. So that's really the, the, the part of the body that physically correlates with that capacity, that rational capacity. Um, Now, with that said, our, um, our, our reason, the fact that we have this reason in our eternal soul uh, isn't located in the body. Every part of the soul is in relationship with every part of the body. So I want to be really clear about that. Um, but on the other hand, if I hit you in the head hard enough in the wrong place, you won't have that, be able to express that capacity anymore. Right? You'll lose the sense input that goes along with it, possibly. You'll lose the ability to express it. So you never become irrational or irrational as, as a human person, but damage to the brain can reduce your capacity um, to think and to express your thoughts. So there is a relationship going on there um, between what we know as our spiritual faculty, faculty and what we know about our biology. So this more primitive part of the brain actually takes over when we're in duress or in a state of fear. And, and it's been demonstrated by scans of the brain that the, the, the parts of the brain associated with things like, like language, higher thought, um, those parts of the brain are, are uh, deregulated or turned down um, when you're in a state of fear. Uh, some scientists say that in our brain, we have kind of like a fast road and a slow road. The fast road are the signals from our senses that end up in our amygdala. Our amygdala is a part of the brain. It's associated with emotion and it's associated with our fight flight response. And then there's a slow road to the brain. And this is the information going from our senses up to that frontal cortex. So this older part of your brain is literally experiencing things before you're conscious of them. And this is key. Uh, the, The researcher Stephen Porges has term this phenomenon neuroception. Neuroception. Basically, our our nervous system is perceiving the world around us in order to keep us safe before we become conscious of the things that we're experiencing. So even if we've uh, immediately noticed something scary, my body has noticed it before and then has started to move toward preparing me to deal with that reality. 
And there's all these shifts in the body. So Dr. Porges has a theory called polyvagal theory. In, in the, the nervous system going down from the brain, we get out of the central nervous system into the body, there's kind of a, a primary control nerve that goes down and connects everything in your guts up to your brainstem, and that's called the vagus nerve. So when we say polyvagal, the word poly just means multiple and vagal for vagus nerve. So what he noted was this, this vagus nerve has a dual function, and we'll talk more about that later, but that's just where the term comes from. So what we're neurocepting in our surroundings, right, the, the safety or danger that our body is perceiving on our behalf, uh, and I realize the, the language that I'm using is a bit um, dualistic in a way, and I'm very much not a dualist that I believe I am my body, we are our bodies, um, but it's just hard to discuss these concepts um, without falling into some of that language. So I apologize for that, but I don't want to mis uh, mislead anyone on that. So if our nervous system is perceiving safety in the environment around us, we're in what's called a ventral vagal state. So we're in a state where our vagus nerve is uh, relaxing our body. The vagus nerve, you might think of it as like the break of the body. It slows everything down. It allows the body to rest, digest, heal, connect with others, notice other people's emotions accurately, hear their voices clearly. Uh, this, these nerves that, that go out from the brain are connected to your inner ear. They're connected uh, to your ability to sense your heart rate, your breathing, all the way down into your digestive system, right? So, so in these safety or threat states that we're experiencing, all these different parts of your body are reacting in one way or another. So when we're safe, we're primed to connect. We're primed to heal. We're primed to digest. We're primed to rest. If we start to perceive some kind of danger, our body enters into a fight-flight state. The, um, the sympathetic nervous system is activated. And when that happens, there's a whole cascade of things that happen in our body biologically. That inner ear muscle adjusts. And we actually become more aware of peripheral sounds and less capable of hearing people's voices. Uh, I call this the restaurant effect. Maybe you've been at a restaurant before, maybe a little uncomfortable meeting somebody new. So you're, you're just not relaxed. And what you find is then you have a hard time hearing the conversation at the table. And you're hearing all the noises around you in the periphery. Well, this is your autonomic nervous system kicking in because uh, you feel like you're in a bit of a dangerous place. Also, your body's going to stop digesting and stop healing. Your heart rate will elevate. Your breathing will quicken because your body's preparing for the need to run away or fight. So it's, it's building up the energy, the oxygen store, uh, getting the blood flow going in order for you to engage with the threat or get away from the threat. And then finally, the third stage that we get into is this second vagal state or dorsal vagal. It's a shutdown place. So if we're in a place of threat and we realize we're going to die, the way the body reacts is almost like to feign sleep or a fawn state. So the body begins to shut down. So even though you have the accelerator going, the sympathetic nervous system is going, everything is moving faster, then all of a sudden your body slams on the brake and shuts everything down. And the idea is then, if I can't get away or fight, I have to play dead.
So if, if we're in a place where we're feeling this kind of, of threat, um, the body also then releases uh, neurochemicals, chemicals throughout the body that cause you to almost like numb out. It's analgesic. It, it's, it's like, you know, so you don't feel the pain of whatever is going to happen. Uh, so sometimes people in the state have the experience that their body's not there. Right? They feel numb. They feel disconnected, almost like they're a spectator to their own life. As I share this, I, I hope you're relating this to your experiences. I think through different experiences when you've met people at restaurants, maybe a job interview, getting up in front of people, giving a talk, contrasted to when you're hanging out with your close friends in your house or with your family um, or in another place where you find, really, you find yourself really connected and in a place of enjoyment. So as, as mammals, this whole system is also very deeply socially connected. This vagal state, this social state, is a state of connection. So as mammals, we also co-regulate one another. We co-regulate one another through a few different things. One, we're always perceiving each other's expressions. So when somebody's in a fight-flight state, they're more likely to interpret a neutral expression or a sad expression as an angry expression. Because in that state, you're less likely to be able to interpret people's faces accurately. On the other hand, the experience of joy on somebody else's face, that feeling that they're delighted to see you, the eye crinkles that come up with a, a true smile, an authentic smile, that's like a healing balm for our nervous system. That tells our bodies that we're safe, that we're okay that someone who loves us is here. Oftentimes little children uh, long for that. You know, I've, I have a four month old son and it's amazing. If, if I have my laptop out and I look at the screen, how his body reacts to me looking away from him. And oftentimes he'll make a noise to redraw my attention, right? He wants my face. He wants to see the delight that I have for him. He wants to see my smile. And then he starts reacting and giggling and smiling and what is that? His little nervous system is reacting to my nervous system. In our brains, we also have mirror neurons. Our brains literally react to the brains of the people around us. And there are neurons that mirror what's going on in the people around us brain. The body is amazing. So we're co-regulated by the people around us. So all of this means that fear changes our body. And if fear changes our body, then fear also changes our perceptions, our senses. So then fear also affects our passions. This internal complex of attractions and repulsions that come in to inform our choices. So when my body is in a fight-flight state or a shutdown state, the way I'm experiencing the world around me, the way I'm experiencing reality is different than the way I'm experiencing the world around me, the way I'm experiencing reality when I'm in that safe and social and connected place. And I want to propose to you that whatever sin you struggle with, whatever bad habits you have, oftentimes, if it's something you've already tried to stop and you can't stop, that struggle probably corresponds with times when you're in the fight-flight state or a shut-down place. 
based on our past experiences, our, our brain's also reacting out of our memory, right? The survival instinct is a pattern instinct. So we, we remember difficult experiences in the past, trauma, uh, wounds, things that have happened to us. And when we experience something in the present that is like something in the past, the system often sort of overreacts. And you've probably had this experience, right? Maybe um, you had a, a you got a really uh, terrible email once or, or a difficult phone call from somebody once. And then then later on, a, a loved one calls you like, they had, there's like two or three missed calls and it's like at a weird time of the day, like first thing in the morning, right? And when you see those couple missed calls, automatically your body probably jumps into some kind of like, what's wrong? Did somebody die? Like, are they okay? And you, you get all worried and worked up about it. What, what's happening is, is your nervous system's reacting through your imagination and your memory to what you think may be the case. So all of this affects our body and it affects our ability to be free. It affects our capacity to choose. It affects our ability to love God and one another. I'm going to repeat that paragraph from the Catechism in 1735. Imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, inordinate attachments, or other psychological or social factors. All right, so what do we do about all this? The good news is that there are, are things about this nervous system that not only are happening automatically, but also that we can control by our choices. Like one of the functions that this nervous system controls is our breathing, but our breathing is also something that we can control by our choice. This is why oftentimes prayer techniques or meditation techniques, even exercise techniques, are accompanied by various breathing techniques. So we can use our breath to affect our nervous system. In fact, every time we breathe in, it's affecting our sympathetic nervous system. Our heart rate actually accelerates a little bit. Every time we breathe out, that vagus nerve is stimulated. The parasympathetic nervous system starts and there's a little bit of a break. So if you breathe in a way to extend your breathing out, you're actually slowing down that system. You're calming that system down. So that long, slow, rhythmic breath is regulating that nervous system, that, that moving back and forth. The place we really don't want to be is in a stuck place. A, a nervous system that's healthy is one that's both reactive, but also flexible, right? So you want your reaction to fit the situation you're in. But then when you're not there anymore, you want to be able to move on to the new circumstance. And oftentimes we end up with a sticky nervous system, a nervous system that sort of echoes with the trauma and harms from earlier in the day. Um, but that breathing technique can help move us on. The other thing we can do is movement. That vagus nerve snakes through the whole body. So movement, exercise, stretching can help to move and stimulate that vagus nerve. Even just sort of turning your head back and forth um, can help. Remember that nervous system is also affected by everything you perceive and you can control your internal senses. So through the faculty of your imagination, you can feed your nervous system information. So you can imagine something soothing, imagine something comforting, imagine something safe and actually start to move the way that you're feeling about the world around you. So you might have a passage from the gospel 
one of the encounters between Christ and, and one of his apostles, maybe uh, maybe after the resurrection or one of the other great conversations in the scripture, and enter into that with your imagination and allow that encounter with Christ to calm you down. All right, as I wrap up today, I want to share something a little bit deeper and also share a thesis with you. So I want to emphasize this isn't like official church teaching or anything like this. This is just something I'm pondering and working on. So this is a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas in the, the first part of the Summa Theologia. He says, For God is in all things, by his essence, power, and presence, according to his common mode, as the cause existing and the effect which participate in his goodness. So that's a, a fancy word of saying that God is in everything because he's created everything. God is in everything because he's present to everything. He's omnipresent. And God is also present to everything because he's holding it in being. If God wasn't holding it there, it would cease to exist. All right, then it goes on. Above and beyond this common mode, however, there is one special mode belonging to the rational nature, wherein God is said to be present as the object known is in the knower and the beloved in the lover. So what he's saying there is God is in us in a special way because as rational creatures, and then also it goes on and identifies specifically, this is the case by sanctifying grace. By sanctifying grace, by the grace that God gives us in our baptism, God is actually present in us. So substantially present. Um, So this book, The Three Ages of the Spiritual Life, that I'm reading from is by uh, Father Reginald Gergou Lagrange. And this is uh, a statement he makes then interpreting this paragraph from the Summa. He says, This last knowledge, being quasi-experimental, attains God not as a distant and simply represented reality, but as a present, possessed reality, which we can enjoy even now. One of Father Lagrange's uh, big pushes is that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning that our spiritual life here on earth is the preamble to our eternal life in heaven. So what we're given through the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love is an anticipation and a foretaste of what we'll experience in heaven. And one of the ways this is expressed is by this special way of God's presence in us, by his sanctifying grace, or by faith, hope, and love. God is present in us this way. So if God is present in us in this way, and we experience that presence, that means we can also be co-regulated by God's presence. So my theory is that we're emotionally co-regulated by God's presence when we're in a state of sanctifying grace. And that this is a state that anticipates it's a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of the kingdom. And it's this very indwelling presence affecting our bodies, affecting the saints, that, that gives us the capacity to be martyrs, that gives us the capacity to love others in spite of the cost. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. But thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Physically Spiritual. In the next episode, we're going to dig into the idea of trauma and how that comes in to interact with everything we're discussing. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. 
I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.